Section number 16. A Shining Memory of a Fair Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Fair Mystery by Bertha M. Clay. Yes, Mark, in plain phrases, had told his story. Mrs. Murray had opened the way, saying frankly, Have you anything to tell us? Yes. Doris is not my daughter. She was left, being two months old or thereabouts, on my doorstep with a letter and a hundred pounds. Here's the letter for you to read. I have done my best for the girl, and I love her. I have tried to meet the wishes of her unknown mother. And of that mother and her history, I know no more than you. If this makes a difference, now is the time to speak. It makes no difference, cried Earl. Only, if possible, I shall love her more than ever. She, having no kith or kin. I saw she did not look in the least like any of you, said Mrs. Moray thoughtfully. Mark smiled. Yes, she is fine china. We are Delf. I've never hinted this thing to Doris, and whatever you decide, I wish the secret rigidly kept, as I have kept it. What is there to decide? cried Earl. We are betrothed. Your mother may think differently, said Mark. Of course I am very sorry that the girl has no name or position, said Mrs. Moray. Earl flushed. Her name will be our name, and her position I will make for her, and I will be honorable, I promise you. You are a stanch fellow, said Mark, but I pledge you to keep this secret always. The idea of being a foundling might make Doris miserable, drive her half wild, or it might set her up to some queer caper. She has a fine spirit of her own. Is she hard to manage? asked Mrs. Murray anxiously. I have never found her hard to manage, said Earl, the dauntless. I hope you'll tell the same tale twenty years from now, said Mark with a laugh. He felt glad this matter was settled. We shall never mention it, said Mrs. Moray, yielding to the inevitable. And on the wedding day I'll give her a hundred pounds, and she shall have a hundred pounds in her outfit. You are very generous, Mr. Brace said Mrs. Moray. Doris is quick and keen. She'll ask you, Earl, what we were saying out here. You may mention the hundred pounds. Just as he had foreseen, Doris questioned Earl, and he told her of the promised outfit and the wedding gift. All this reconciled her more to the idea of marrying. My mother shan't interfere with what I get for my outfit, she said to herself, I'll dress like a lady for once. One hundred pounds in clothes will make a very fair show. Alas, Patty, in her thrifty mind, had already destined part of this hundred pounds to sheeting and tablecloths, blankets and pillowcase. A hundred pounds for clothes, fee on the extravagance, a white mull for the wedding gown, a black silk, a cashmere, this was Patty's notion of a suitable bridal trousseau. A hundred pounds on my wedding day, 
to use as I like. You may be sure I shan't touch it, laughed Earl. A hundred pounds! That is kind of him, but it is not much. I could spend it in one hour in London. Spend it in an hour? I'm glad you are not fond of money. I am fond of it. Money is the salt and essence of life. And you marry a man who has almost none? But a man who can, who must make a great deal. Suppose I should not. She looked at him in alarm. Suppose you should not? I tell you I would rather die than be mean and plain and poor all my life. Dear child, you do not understand. You have exaggerated ideas. You shall never be left to suffer. Cheer up. I will make money, and you, my little idol, shall spend it. That is fair, cried Doris joyously. I'll buy no end of things. Gregory Leslie finished his picture of Innocence and took it away, knowing it should grace the walls of the Academy the next May. At Brackenside, he had found an artistic ideal and reached the acme of his art life. Doris wondered a little, the while she had inspired the artist, she had not conquered the man. Earl and Gregory made a compact of friendship and parted to meet in pain. Earl entered into a very happy winter. As Doris had inspired the artist, so she inspired the poet. And Earl sang as he had never sung before. A little volume of his verses found a publisher and public approval. And though the recompense did not at all meet the idea of Doris, she told herself that fame led the way to fortune. Indulged by Mark and Patty, and waited on by Mattie, while Earl was in daily raptures over her charms, as bride-elect Doris managed to pass the winter at the farm with some content. Mark had hired for her a good piano. She had a store of French novels, and she seduciously refused to have any steps taken in the matter of wedding paraphernalia. And yet, as the weeks crept by, Doris began to be weary of lover and friends and country home, and longing for the gay world and all its glories filled her fantastic heart. Oh, why does not some lord with a coach and six come along and carry me off and marry me, she cried one day as she sat in the window, lazily watching the falling snow. "'Surely you would not give up Earl for any lord,' cried Mattie. "'Wouldn't I? I only hope for his sake I'd not be tempted. "'If the lord had money enough and jewels enough and memorial castles enough, "'I'm afraid, Mattie, you'd be left to console Earl.' "'Child, don't talk in that reckless way,' said Mrs. Brace." "'I'm only telling the truth if I find myself a natural affinity for lords,' said Doris, and Mrs. Brace sighed and flushed. Well, the winter passed, and the love-making of Earl was becoming an old story, and farm life a weariness to the flesh. But still Doris hid her vexations and unrest in her heart. The hawthorn bloomed, when Mark came in one day, crying cheerily, 
Here's something like old days. The Duke is coming home for good, and Lady Estelle is finally quite well and strong, but unmarried still. More's the pity. They've been away long, said Patty uneasily. I, how long is it since I've seen his grace? Not since they all came here. Patty looked warningly at him. He stooped to tie his shoe. The Duke been here? said Doris. The Duke and his family to a common farmhouse? A farmhouse is not so poor a place, Missy, said Mark. Doris sprung up. I remember. Now I remember. I've had gleams of it and wondered what I was trying to think of. They came in a gorgeous coach with men in livery, and, and I thought it quite splendid, the Duke, a tall, grand man. With him, two ladies? Yes, said Patty shortly. I can see my memories best in the dark, said Doris, shutting her lovely blue eyes. It is a vague dream of a fair, proud face, a shining, lovely lady, all in lace and silk and jewels. That was Lady Estelle Herford, said Mark, carried away. Lady Estelle Herford. There's a name worth wearing. Why did I not have such a name? Not that hateful Doris Brace. Your name is good enough said Mark tartly. Why did they come? demanded Doris. These people were not good at fine evasions, but Mark made shift to answer. The Duke is my landlord. It's only proper for him to see his best farm now and then. Did they see me? urged Doris. Listen to Vanity, as if she was the show of the house, said Mark. So I am. What here is worth seeing in comparison? If that doesn't beat all, said the scandalized Patty. Yes, he saw you, said Mark, and now your next question will be, Did he admire me? I won't answer you. There's no need. It goes without saying. Of course he admired me, if he had eyes. I must have been lovely. Why did you not have my picture taken? I must have looked like one of Corrigio's little angels. Whose? asked Mark. You didn't act much like an angel, if I remember right, said Mattie quietly. Who cares for the acting so long as one has the looks? inquired Doris with simplicity. Share and share alike between sisters. You know, Mattie, I'll look like an angel and you'll act like one. End of section 16, A Shining Memory.